This week, more than just nature reserves, we discover the unexpected diversity of the countryside. All people depend in very intimate, even if they're hidden, ways on how we manage countryside landscapes. And delivering sustainable energy to the developing world. It breaks my heart when I hear these people saying that Africa has to do what we did and burn as much carbon as we did because they don't. They can do better than us. Plus the latest on the acid bath stem cells as accusations of misconduct fly. This is The Nature Podcast for April 17th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. First this week, when you think of conservation, what kind of landscapes come to mind? Amazonian rainforest untouched by a logger's saw, or weird and wild islands like the Galapagos? Stanford University ecologist Gretchen Daly and her team instead catalogued the diversity of bats in the Costa Rican countryside, a patchwork of coffee plantations, pastures and small rainforests. This mixed use is the hallmark of countryside landscapes. To their surprise, the countryside's biodiversity rivaled that of more pristine landscapes. So from Kent to Kansas, could the countryside be the key to conservation? Reporter Ewan Calloway gave Gretchen a call to find out why now is the time to conserve the countryside. Why is it important to consider the countryside in conservation and in ecological terms? Yeah, historically, conservation has been kind of a race against time and has really focused on protecting kind of the most pristine of the landscapes left on the planet or seascapes. But what we're recognizing today is that a focus on these last sort of nuggets around the world will not go nearly far enough in sustaining our life support systems. So we must turn our attention much more systematically to countryside landscapes when thinking about how to secure human well-being, our economic prosperity, our health, and just in terms of food and energy security. Your team has argued, right, that we need to think of conserving the ecology of the countrysides differently than we think about conserving these pristine landscapes. So in the past, people have thought there isn't that much to conserve in farming countryside. So we've tended to ignore those areas. But what we show in this paper is that actually there's a lot that can be sustained in the way of these biological assets in countryside um, that underpin economic prosperity and security and, and just the more deeply fulfilling dimensions of human life. In your effort to, to catalog or to, to measure the, the ecology of, of, of countrysides, your team actually went out in, into the field and did, did some rather unique work. Could you tell us about this? We had an exceptional opportunity to look at how well countryside landscapes sustain biodiversity by studying bats. They're thought to be good indicators of the health and biodiversity in a region. So out in these countrysides where you have lots of little villages, a lot of farms interspersed together with coffee, sugarcane, and other kind of mixed crops, corn, and also um, rather extensive grazing areas for cattle production. And through them interweaving remaining little bits of tropical rainforest that a landowner here or there will protect. 
And our question was, could a system like that actually sustain the levels of biodiversity and all the benefits supplied to human societies that we think we need going into the future? And the answer from the paper is that yes, there's tremendous opportunity and we've been overlooking the opportunity and imperative to focus investments in countryside. Were you surprised to find these, these countryside landscapes, coffee plantations, etc., supporting a large diversity of bats? This came as a huge surprise. that um, actually came a few years ago in our group, and we were so surprised, we thought we might be wrong, and we didn't publicize our findings very widely. We thought, oh, we'd better work on this a bunch more and in extreme detail because it ran so contrary to the general thinking on this. So our group has studied uh, now for about 15 years many other uh, dimensions of life. And we've found the same patterns across all of these different groups. What do you think the findings of, of your study say about how investment in maintaining biodiversity should be apportioned? Yeah, right now we tend to look at countryside as a place that um, is geared mostly toward food production, but we need to change from that and recognize that actually all people depend in very intimate, even if they're hidden, ways on how we manage countryside landscapes. All of us depend on flood control. We all depend on water purification. All of these benefits now are being measured and we need to account for them. And so this will require big shifts in the way we think about who supports and who invests in these benefits too. It ought to be cities investing and governments recognizing how much value, how much of their value hinges on the functioning and health of, of our rural landscapes. Is there a worry that if conservation efforts refocus on the countryside, that pristine landscapes will be abandoned and people will say, oh, you know, we can convert these to, to mixed landscapes, agricultural landscapes, and get just as much benefit? So it's not a question of either or. We have to go for both protecting remaining pristine um, areas on the planet and at the same time investing with real vigor in securing countryside landscapes. If we don't start investing in countryside, we're dooming much of nature and also much of humanity to a deeply impoverished future. That was Gretchen Daly from Stanford University. Coming up, Noah Baker meets the company helping African communities capture the power of the sun. But before that, he's here with the research highlights. Drilling holes in the ground in earthquake-prone areas could ease the shakes. A French team drilled a grid of holes five metres deep in a test site near Grenoble. Then they used a vibrating device lowered into the soil by a crane to simulate an earthquake or construction work. The holes were located at spots where the seismic waves interfered with each other and cancelled out in the empty space. In this way, the vibrations were dampened. That paper is in Physical Review Letters. The atmosphere on ancient Mars may have been too thin to allow flowing water at the surface. 
Mars is riven with canyons and valleys where, presumably, water once flowed. Only relatively warm planets can host liquid water. Researchers assumed Mars's atmosphere acted like a toasty blanket. A US-based team now questioned this idea. They looked at pockmarks from meteorites hitting the surface of Mars. Some very small bodies managed to get through the atmosphere and crash land, impossible through a blanket-like atmosphere. To account for the evidence of water, the team suggests that the water was briny and froze at a lower temperature. Find that paper in Nature Geoscience. Next up, how do you bring energy to everyone in the world? Since 2011, when the UN launched an initiative called Sustainable Energy for All, energy experts have been trying to find out. A comment piece this week gives some pointers on how to do it. One tip, make clean energy a market, not a handout. The London-based charity SolarAid is one player in this nascent market. They're aiming to deliver clean light to the developing world. Noah Baker went to ask them about their approach. UN Director General Ban Ki-moon grew up studying at night by a smoky oil lamp. Like many millions around the world, he didn't have access to Maine's energy. Since becoming the UN's head honcho, he made it part of his mission to bring energy to all peoples around the world. He hopes to make as much of this as possible sustainably produced, clean and green. How difficult is this goal? I've come down to the London offices of the charity SolarAid to speak to Charlie Miller. Charlie, first things first, how much of a problem is this? It's an enormous problem. 1.3 billion people rely on um, wood, kerosene, batteries and candles for, for their energy. And uh, it costs them an absolute fortune. It costs them anywhere from 10 to 20, 25% of household income. Far more than we spend on electricity here in the UK. And what does this mean for people's health? Well, uh, just to take the kerosene lamp, um, it contributes to indoor air pollution, which is a bigger killer than malaria or TB when combined with the fumes from cooking fires. And uh, it's a leading cause of child poisoning in Africa because you've got a, you've got a toxic colourless liquid in the house. And you've got a kerosene lamp here, I'm looking at it, and it looks to me an old air freshener can that's sort of been repurposed with a wick in it. Is this kind of standard, the kind of thing that you'd see out in, in Africa, for example? Yeah, very much so. These, um, these repurposed cans are, are the norm um, across rural Africa. And I'm assuming that we have these sort of repurposed lamps because they don't have access to other kinds of technology. And that's where you step in. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've benefited a lot from, from advances made by the mobile phone industry, for example, around batteries and the lighting industry around LEDs. And uh, now we're able to offer a, a simple study light, like the one I'm holding here, for about $10. And that will replace a kerosene lamp for sort of three years or so, um, saving a family $85 a year in the process. But, but you at Soledad are a charity, but you're selling products. Why, why selling products? Why not give them away through funding from people in the West? Well, um, I think that's one of the things that, that really matters to us a lot here at SolarAid is that we reject giveaways. We think um, giveaways are you know, actually quite a negative way to try and do development in Africa. So um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to achieve real scale. We're trying to get these lights into the hands of everyone that needs them. And the only mechanism that is ever really going to do that is a, is a market. And how, how do local community leaders or, or, or local governments respond to the kind of things that they can do? Do they push against them or are they, are they happy to accept them? 
Well, if you ask the Minister of Energy in a given African country what the uh, policy is with regards to off-grid solutions, so these portable products or the solar home systems, um, normally they won't, they won't know exactly what to say because energy policy is still grid policy, effectively, for, for many of these governments. We need to think differently about energy. We need to enable Africa to um, take advantage of the technologies that exist today rather than telling them that, that they should do what we did um, 50, 100 years ago. What about countries that happen to be sitting on a lot of coal or countries that happen to be sitting on a lot of fossil fuel resources? Is it going to be harder to convince them to not start using their resources and becoming energy independent, not relying on buying, buying products from the West? Well, I think, you know, as this market grows, the, the products won't be produced in the West. I mean, we've, we're already seeing manufacture of portable solar lights in Ethiopia, in Mozambique. Local production is coming. And the more of the benefit from this industry that, that it, you know, stays in Africa, obviously, the, the, the better it is for development. So, um, you know, it, it's not about importing. It's about importing now, but that will change naturally over time. Do you think that we're going to get everyone getting access to energy and making that energy to some extent sustainable? What, 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 do, you, what do you foresee looking forward? I think it's going to be hard. It, it could happen. If it does happen, I think it'll be largely driven by the fact that renewable technology now enjoys cost parity with fossil fuels and uh, in future will be cheaper than fossil fuels. So economics will work its magic. But equally, you know, I think how, how we deliver on energy access is critical because if you invest a lot in things like gas and, and you achieve energy access using carbon-based um, fuel, then uh, ultimately everything you do will be self-defeating because climate change is going to hit the poorest in Africa very, very hard. It's something I see every time I go to Africa. And it breaks my heart when I hear these people saying that, Africa has to do what we did and burn as much carbon as we did because they don't. They can do better than us and they should and we should help them do that. Noah was speaking to Charlie Miller of the charity SolarAid. Find out more about them at solar-aid.org and read the comment piece by two UN Foundation authors Reid Detchen and Richenda van Leeuwen at nature.com slash nature. Coming up in the news chat, the latest on the STAP cells saga, the stem cells made using a weak acid bath. The results continue to be questioned and the authors gave a press briefing last week. But before that, for such tiny things, sperm have a big job on their hands. Not only do they have to swim to the womb and through it, but then they need to catch themselves the prize, attach themselves to an egg. But despite the fact that fertilisation has been studied by scientists for over a century, until now they only know of one protein that's essential for this meet and greet. It's called Izumo. Izumo was discovered in 2005. It sits on the sperm's head, and if it's faulty or missing, the sperm can't fuse with the egg. But Izumo can't work alone. It needs a partner on the egg, a receptor to bind to. In this week's Nature, researchers present a mate for Azumo. It's a receptor on the egg's surface and it gladly welcomes Azumo with open arms. I spoke to author Enrica Bianchi at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge, UK and began by asking her why the search for Azumo's friend has been a decade long. Fertilisation is itself a quite difficult subject to handle because you have very limited uh, material to work with and also usually the um, interaction of proteins that are expressed on the surface of cells are transient and weak, so they are quite difficult to, uh, to be studied. So can you talk us through how you discovered this receptor? 
Uh, yeah, we took advantage of some technologies that were developed in the lab to express Izumo in a modified version, and this modification renders the, uh, the interaction, the binding, more stable and so more easy for us uh, to be studied. And this is how we were able finally to identify the, the binding partner for, for Izumo. And you've given us a name. Yeah, the protein was already present in the databases, but then we showed that it is essential for fertilization. So we proposed to rename it Juno after the Roman goddess of fertility and marriage. And to check that Juno plays a role in fertilization, you carried out various experiments. Yeah, first of all, we wanted to see whether the antibody against Juno was able to block fertilization in vitro. And we showed that the antibody was able to block fertilization completely because the antibody binds to the surface of the egg, preventing the sperm to bind to, to their receptor. And then, obviously, we, we had to uh, show that the, the protein was functional in vivo. And to do that, we, we generated mice that lack Juno. And these mice are healthy, they develop normally, and uh, only the, the female are, are sterile. And this is because the, their oocytes are unable to bind with, with sperm. So is this interaction between Azumo on the sperm and Juno on the egg the only thing that's needed for successful fusion? Well, it's a complicated question, actually, to be honest. This is not sufficient per se as interaction to trigger uh, fusion, but it is essential. So if you have either a Juno or Izumo protein that are not functional, sperm and egg are not able to, to, to bind and to fuse. So fertilization cannot occur successfully if you don't have these two protein functional. You also got another surprise when you looked for Juno on the fertilized egg. Yeah, yeah. We knew from data available in the literature that sperm are not able to, to bind to fertilized eggs. And this is a mechanism that mammalian oocytes use to uh, prevent more than one sperm to fuse with uh, with the egg because uh, what you want to have is uh, one egg fertilized by one sperm in order to have um, a viable embryo. When we check for the expression for the presence of Juno on the surface of, of eggs immediately after fertilization, we realize that the protein uh, disappears very quickly from the surface of the egg, 30-40 minutes after fertilization. And this is in good agreement with the mechanism the oocytes are able to put in place to prevent more than one sperm fuse with them. Can these findings shed any light on infertility as we understand it? Well, infertility is becoming an uh, increasing problem, especially in the Western country. And it, it is remarkable that uh, uh, 20% of infertility cases have an unexplained cause, so we don't know um, what's going on there. And uh, we are now uh, testing whether Juno um, is involved in these cases of unexplained infertility. So it might be that Juno defects are responsible for, for cases of infertility in women, and we are checking these cases. And in terms of contraceptives, do any current contraceptives already target this interaction between the sperm and the egg? No, no. Okay, so there, so there's room now for, for this re- research to feed into the development of contraceptives that would target this interaction. Yeah, if Juno could be um, exploited to, to develop a contraceptive devices, that would be great. And, and also 
um, no new contra contraceptive devices have been introduced for humans since the, uh, since the pill in the 60s, basically. That was Enrica Bianchi on the line from Cambridge, UK. Finally this week, reporter David Sironoski joins me on the line from Beijing for the news chat for an update on STAP cells, which stands for Stimulus Triggered Acquisition of Pluripotency. David, first of all, just remind listeners of the background to this STAP cell story. Yeah, the STAP cells were um, announced in uh, two Nature papers on January 30th. It was a group of Japanese researchers uh, collaborating with Harvard uh, Medical School researchers who um, discovered this. And basically, it's uh, their stem cells that uh, they say they can revert to an embryonic-like state by stressing them. And the stresses include acid solution exposure or a physical stress on the membrane, uh, things like this. And this was something that really not too many people saw coming, so it was, it was really uh, overwhelmed many of the scientists in the field. Yeah, there was a lot of press at the time. Subsequently, there has continued to be press because some of the um, methodologies have been um, called into question. Yes. Uh, so there were many problems in the papers that uh, popped up in tweets and blogs and things like that. Um, duplicated images and composite images. You know, these are the kind of things that happen in papers all the time. You know, I've heard estimates of 20% of papers and things like that. But uh, in, in this case, I think there was just so many of them in one paper. And some of them are, are quite difficult to explain. For example, why uh, an image from her 2011 uh, dissertation popped up in this uh, Nature paper. The other thing that, that is, sets this aside from some of the other papers that have been controversial is that uh, they, they claimed that this was a very simple method from the beginning, and it was the kind of thing uh, that people thought they should be able to reproduce right away. And a lot of researchers set out, as soon as the paper was, was published, and set out to replicate the findings, and uh, they weren't able to, and no one's been able to so far. Yeah, so there have been these problems with, with replication, and there have been accusations even from members of the original research team. The latest on this is that last week there was a conference of sorts that was held. Uh, yeah, the Riken Institute, where um, Haruko Obokata and um, some of the other co-authors worked, did, did an investigation, and they reported the results of their investigation on uh, April 1st. They basically said that what she calls are simple mistakes, which they, they said that they amount to fraud. And she immediately rebutted this and said, this isn't fraud, these are just mistakes. So um, last week she held her own press conference basically um, pleading for people to believe her. And she wants Riken to go back and reinvestigate. So now Riken has 50 days to it's given itself 50 days to go back and, and decide whether it wants to uphold its findings or not. And this was somewhat of a media circus, wasn't it? I mean, here we have this young female um, researcher from Japan, famously quite overwhelmed by the coverage of her papers the first time round, appearing again in front of cameras and microphones. Yeah, it's been a, a circus since the first publication uh, because she's a 30-year-old researcher, Japanese researcher, and in the spotlight all of a sudden. And that's very rare in Japan to see this kind of young researcher. But on top of that, she had a, a kind of unique personality and she was wearing um, her grandmother's frock, kapogi it's called in Japanese. So the Japanese media really latched onto this and she became a kind of instant celebrity. And she, she was hospitalized for a brief period, is that right? 
Uh, the last I heard, she was still hospitalized, which uh, you, you might be going on to this to this day. Uh, the lawyers have been very forthright in talking about her emotional instability and things like that. I mean, there are several unusual things about this situation, but one of them, at least from the scientific community, is that her her co-authors were some of the most um, outspoken critics, I suppose, of this work. That struck me as a little bit unusual. Uh, did it strike you that way? Uh, yeah, I think the, the different stories coming out from different co-authors has been interesting. The Harvard co-author, uh, Charles Vacanti, has, has basically stood by the paper all along. He says, okay, there might be problems with them, but they don't take away from the, the conclusions. Uh, they're just simple mistakes. Other co-authors have said that they think the paper should now be retracted. And one of them is even doing a, a genetic test on some of the stem cell lines that uh, were produced during the experiments to see if there is some evidence of um, contamination, either either contamination that was deliberate or contamination that just happened. So what next then? We've got uh, Reken have issued themselves a 50-day deadline to look into this further. Other scientists around the world are independently trying to test the results of this method? Yeah, I, I don't think there are probably too many scientists out there who are still trying to do this. I, th I think at Harvard Medical School, they, they probably are in the lab of uh, Dr. Vacanti. Um, and now at RECAN, they've set up a very rigorous protocol to reevaluate the, the findings. And they're going to go back and try to do exactly what Dr. Owakata said she had done in the first paper. Uh, and then they're going to go beyond that and try to do some variations on it. The other thing that people will be waiting to see are these genetic tests that, that um, I mentioned. And, and those will be coming, uh, the results of those should be here sometime in the summer, maybe June, July, or August. Uh, and basically the, these will tell whether the original uh, study had some kind of contamination. Okay. Well, so a few things to wait for until there's a definite conclusion then. Uh, you wonder if people, well, people must be treating her differently because she's young female Japanese. Yeah, there's no question about that. And in, in, in positive ways too, when, when, it first, when, she, when the papers first came out, people were talking about this, the boom they expected uh, for getting young women into science. And some papers were reporting that the number of women enrolling in science courses was up this spring because of the Obakata effect. So there was a kind of positive, positive implications from it at first, but uh, now I don't think we could probably say that anymore. David Cyrinowski, thank you for that update. Read more of David's coverage on the ongoing stap cell story at nature.com slash news. That's all from us this week. Join us next time when we'll be learning how to help coral breed in the face of climate change. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>